Anderson. There's the windup. Here's the pitch. It's a slow curve low, and the babe swings. It's a long one, a long one going out toward right center. Stengler's backing up against the wall. He can't get it. It's in there. Another home run for the Bambino. So the babe hits his second home run. What's that? That's a swear jar. Every time someone swears, you put a quarter in it. Who gets the money? I don't know. We'll use it to buy something for the office, like a case of Bud Light or something. F***ing awesome. F*** you, Bob. Ha, f*** you, Jim. Eric, I have a bag in line three for you. Can I borrow your pen? Can I borrow your f***ing pen? Will the owner of a white station wagon please go f*** yourself? We're going to go down there and we're going to f*** some We're going to f*** some We're going to do whatever we have to because we're going to f*** some Hope. Doesn't count. Shut the up. I am so proud of you suckers. Here, here. Refreshingly smooth Bud Light. Always worth it. Inside a can of Old Bay, a dock worker from Locust Point, a doctor from Sinai, a hairdresser from Patterson Park, and a firefighter from Glendon. There's a fourth grader from Friendship Academy, and a lacrosse star from Boys Latin, a Catholic priest, and an Orthodox rabbi, a grandma from Dundalk, and a drummer from Hamilton. What's inside a can of Old Bay? You are Old Bay. For 75 years, it's been the can that connects us. Kinds of hitters. A choke hitter and a swing hitter. Now, a swing hitter generally gets the full length of the bat and swings right from the heels. Where a choke hitter shortens his bat about three or four inches, stands flat-footed, and just pokes at the ball and not that full swing. Hey, Mike, throw me a few, will you? Now, see, that was choke hitting. Now I'll show you swing hitting. Get it right at the end, just like that. Come back and... Swing hitting depends entirely on balance and timing. Notice that my weight is on my left foot. As I start swinging, my weight shifts to my right foot at the time of contact with the ball. The force of the swing makes a perfect follow-through. Swing hitting is the most popular style, but you take more chances of missing the ball. I favor this style of hitting. Jake got strong and mighty, undefeated, I mean it, pull up the posture. 
president. You sit at home crying like a girl while I spread the gospel around the world. Yo, the pods are written behind tracks that mixed in smooth with the groove to make ears want to listen. Add a little gut and a rhythm to back it up. Another show to my name, now watch me stack them up. You think another white rap bag, but this ain't no ad chat. My hobbies are rob, some people try to be black with that. About time I come out, call the show, BKP and let me turn it out. Yo, name Jake the Snake, Porter 71. Dates, you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns. Yo, experience, I've been a witness to glory. And that's why I collect ball players and their stories. You heard? So. Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulese Island, South Carolina, Hat Man, Hat Podcast Machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call... Backwards, K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, Seamheads? What's Gucci? Welcome back into the dojo, Seamheads, for yet another chapter in the baseball podcast, Spanning the Globe. Backwards, K-Pod, the place where all of us Seamhead nerds from around the world can get together free of judgment and recount the players, the moments, milestones, uh, personalities, stadiums, and pop culture references that have made the national pastime leave such an indelible and profound impact on all of our psyches as true fans of this magnificent sport. Hello, everybody. Show 120, week 14 of the 2023 offseason. It's your boy, Jake the Snake. I got your hookup. Holler if you hear me. I'm going to be taking them out today for you guys. And, and look, I got a full tank of gas and a bag full of knuckle sandwiches. I'm ready to dole them out today. I'm on a mission from God. And I tell you, like my boy uh, Bobby Knight, Coach Bobby Knight said in his locker room rant, I'm not here to fuck around today. Now, you might be, but I'm not. Give me the goddamn ball and get out of my way. Let's go. In fact, folks... I got more ground to cover than Devon White out in center field at Skydome. So, this week's topic is huge. So, we're going to pivot and bypass this week's hot stove report. Or, this show is going to go on for like two hours. And if, and if, I, if I'm being honest, folks, even I get sick of myself after that much goddamn talking. It's too bad. I was looking to glow a little with my Orioles training for stud ace Corbin Burns. Bobby Wood Jr. resigns with the Royals. Kershaw goes back to the Dodgers. But I got to keep the focus, the eye on the prize. And this week, the prize is the Babe Ruth bio. He is as important as any player in the history of this game, except, I don't know, maybe Jackie Robinson. So, with that being said, that's my cue to herd you last remaining stragglers onto our time, Chavo Chucho. Clear this platform here at Terrapin Station. As I look to the west of Terrapin, I can see our majestic, immaculate ball field perfectly manicured for the game. That's about to go off. The catcher has finished his warm-up tosses. He's throwing a pee down a second on the bag. Very nice. The infield has thrown that ball around, and the umpire has called play ball. Play ball. So I'm calling all aboard. 
as we have quite the trip planned for you today as we are going back to the 19th century, February 6, 1895, 216 Emory Street, the Snake's Old Stomping Grounds, West Baltimore, to witness the birth and rise of the face of baseball in the 20th century. The man who will bend the sport into his own image like a baseball god. This week's Freaks, we're talking about the one and only George Herman Babe Ruth. Now, hurry, hurry, step right up. Get in where you fit in, find your spot, stake your claim on our spaces. State-of-the-art and space-bending locomotive. Take your shoes off. Open your kimonos. Ladies, take off their bras and let the girls hang. We don't judge here. Get yourself real comfortable as we build up the necessary quantum speeds needed to bend time. Some of you might want to hear, you, know, you, you might hear a slight hum. Maybe experience minor discomfort in your left arm. We are entering that 1.6 gigahertz of radio frequency spice that we don't experience on Earth in real time. Don't be alarmed. It's the same as when your ears get plugged up when you're flying. And as we prepare to hit this first wormhole, I want to give you guys a heads up with what is going on in the world of 1895, the year that George Herman Babe Ruth was born. What exactly are we rolling into? Well, the horseless buggy is the biggest technological craze of the year as the first automobile race in French history is won by Emile Lavasseur from Paris to Bordeaux, back to Paris, 1,178 kilometers or 732 miles in 48 hours and 48 minutes. The first organized automobile race in the United States is run in Chicago. A six-car race, 52-mile late front course from Chicago to Evanston and back. Where only two cars will finish because of blizzard conditions. Frank Jurio wins the race with a mind-bottling 7 miles per hour average speed. His brother Charles Jurio is the first American to patent a gasoline-driven automobile. The movie picture production machine is patented, and the first commercial movie is played on Broadway in New York City. The Chinese surrender Japan in the first Sino-Japanese War, and they seek control of Taiwan to the Japanese under the Treaty of Shimoneski. The Los Angeles Railways is established, and engineers are making plans to provide a streetcar service. Georgetown becomes a part of Washington, D.C., one of my favorite party towns on the planet. Congress authorizes a U.S. Mint in Colorado. The U.K. experiences record low temperatures of minus 17 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 22 Celsius. And the city of New Orleans experiences a record snowfall of 9 inches, which is 23 centimeters, in sports the game of volleyball is invented in Springfield, Massachusetts, the same place where basketball is born, which I find that interesting. You, you, you need those indoor activities during those brutal New England winter months, I suppose. The Stanley Cup is won by the Montreal hockey team over Queen's University from Kingston, Ontario. 
The horse Belmar wins two-thirds of the Triple Crown with victories at the Preakness and Belmont. The first pro football game was played. Quarterback John Brailer. He's paying a whopping $10 to participate. Now $10.1895 is worth about $340 today in the 2024 economy. And yachting, the defender of the U.S., uh, the, 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 the ship called the Defender of the U.S. It defeats the Valkyrie 3 of England in the 10th America's Cup. And Auburn beats Alabama. We're all tied. 48 to nothing in the fourth ever Iron Bowl. So, this is the world we are creeping into. And the world that George Herman Ruth is being born into. It literally is a world... About to be thrown into the industrial boom at the turn of the century, followed by two catastrophic world wars that will envelop the planet. This is literally the ground floor, folks. Uh, soon, Henry Ford will take these horseless buggy automobiles and teach the world how to mass produce with the creation of the assembly line. As for George Herman, he would grow up from his rough and tumble kid. Uh, from the bricks of Baltimore, forge ahead in this new turn of the century world of endless possibilities and forge his own star in the universe. In my opinion, there are two players in particular who have forever changed the course of baseball with their extraordinary play, their personality, their perfect timing and fitting into baseball history. And those two players are Jackie Robinson and Babe Ruth. Now, I already have Jackie Robinson bio in the archives. Feel free to check that out. And I'm so excited to get Ruth into our catalog. I mean, you really can't have a collection of ballplayers in the stories without him, right? Love them or hate them. Love the Yankees or hate them. I really don't understand how any true fan of the game could possibly hate Babe Ruth. Going up in Baltimore, running around West Baltimore in particular, playing baseball. There's a sense of pride knowing that Babe grew up around here on these same type of sandlots. There was always a sense of, of if Babe can make it out of here playing baseball, maybe I can too. Now, I had this running through my head all the time as a kid, and, and I know I wasn't the only one with that logic. If you're a seaman kid playing baseball, in Baltimore, West Baltimore in particular, Babe Ruth is never far from your conscience. I love playing baseball at old Cardinal Gibbons High School fields because the Babe played there. But I can say I played baseball on hollow ground that Ruth played on. And it was an honor. During his first five season with the Red Sox, Babe Ruth was pitching, establishing himself as one of the premier southpaws of the game before his Historic transformation from dominant hurler to the literal, the literal game-changing slugging outfielder for the New York Yankees. His prodigious batting performances over the next few seasons and helped usher in a new era of long-distance hitting and high scoring, while ostensibly drawing the curtain on the dead ball era. Here we are, folks. Pulling up at Camden Yard Station, Charm City, Baltimore, where in a little less than 100 years from now, this ground will literally see a change in the course of baseball stadium construction in the new millennium. If you look 
at what is now center field of Orioles Park at Camden Yards, you'll see the family bar owned by the Ruth family. And his home is 216 Emory Street, which is literally two blocks west of that. If you remember from the Camden Yards show in the archives, I told you the story of how Babe's father was killed. He was murdered in front of the family bar, literally in center field of what is now Camden Yards. His parents were George and Catherine Schamberger Ruth. And this is their modest row home here on Emory Street where he is being born today. February 6, 1895. And while his father is putting in long hours at the bar and his mother always struggling with her health little Georgie as he was known back then would usually run the waterfront streets and inner harbor docks unsupervised committing petty theft and vandalism sometimes he would hang out at his father's saloon stealing money from the register drinking the remaining swallows of beer and the glasses lit by the patrons and by the time he was six he had developed a fondness for chewing tobacco shortly after his seventh birthday his parents had had enough they just didn't know what to do with little George anymore he's absolutely incorrigible the parents petitioned the Baltimore courts to do something with this little badass right here. And not only did the courts agree with the poor Ruth, they actually agree he is incorrigible and they declare him as such. They sent the young boy to live at St. Mary's Industrial School, which would later become the Cardinal Gibbons High School grounds I was speaking of. And that was literally near the city and county line, about two and a half miles, four kilometers from his parents' home on Emory Street. Now his initial stay had lasted only four weeks before his parents came into the boys crying and promises of being a good boy. In the first of several reconciliation attempts, his long-term residence at St. Mary's had actually begins in 1904 when he was nine years old. And that was the day that little George met the most influential man in his young life. His name was Brother Matthias. And Brother Matthias, he was tough, but he was fair on the young George Herman. And Ruth later in life would acknowledge that Brother Matthias taught him how to read, write, and the difference between right and wrong. He once said that the Canadian-born priest was the father he always needed and the greatest man he would ever know. And after teaching these little incorrigibles all day, Brother Matthias would spend the afternoon hours tossing worn-out baseballs in the air and swatting them with a bat out to the boys. And little George can recollect the very first time he saw Brother Matthias do this. It was the most amazing thing he had ever seen in his life. Besides maybe a naked girl, of course. And Ruth once said, I had never seen anything like this before. I was completely bug-eyed. I think I was born to be a hitter. From the very first day I saw Brother Matthias hit a baseball. The impressionable youngster, he begins to imitate Matthias's hitting style, grabbing the lumber by the knob and taking a big cut. 
choking up and poking at the ball. That didn't appeal to George. He wanted to be like Brother Matthias. George was hacking from day one. He also mimicked the good batter style, the good brother style of running with these quick, tiny steps. And Ruth was a natural. He had little difficulty anywhere on the field. He could pitch. He played catcher, outfield, infield, wherever. He never really cared where he was playing. He just wanted to play. The kid had a true passion for baseball as soon as he was exposed to the game. He was a natural. In St. Mary's game in 1913, the 18-year-old George caught... He played third base with no issues, even as a left-hander, uh, as a left-handed uh, thrower. And he pitched, striking out six batters, all while f- falling a single shy of a cycle with a double, a triple, and a dog. And that summer, he was given permission to pitch for local amateur and semi-pro teams on the weekends. Impressed with his game, scout Jack Dunn signed George to his minor league Baltimore Orioles club in February. Although George was awkward, so I would call him a bumpkin, with minimal social skills of note, he quickly distinguished himself on the diamond at camp in South Carolina and Arkansas. So much so that people began to call the teenager Jack Dunn's Baby Ruth. And the nickname Babe stuck for the rest of his life. That spring... The Orioles played several major league teams in two outings against the Phillies. He faced 29 batters. He allowed only six hits with two unearned runs. The next week, he went up against the Philadelphia A's, winners of three of the last four World Series, and he tossed a complete game victory against them. But short on loot, Dunn would sell the babe to the Boston Red Sox. On July 11, 1914, less than five months after leaving St. Mary's, Babe made his major league debut at Fenway Park. He goes seven strong, picks up the W in a 4-3 victory against the Tribe. In the second game, he is hit hard by the Tigers, and he rode the bench till he was demoted to the minors in mid-August, where he helps the Providence Grays catcher the International League pennant. Ruth would return to B-Town for the final week of the 1914 season. On October 2nd, he pitches a complete game victory over the Yankees, and he doubles in his first Major League at-bat. After his first season in the Bigs, Ruth returns home to Baltimore in the winter with his new wife, Helen Woodford. And in 1915, he stuck with the big club. He started out slowly, though, in some parts because of his late night carousing with fellow pitcher Dutch Leonard. He also broke his toe after kicking the bench in frustration after being walked intentionally. And he would miss a whole two weeks from that injury. But when he returned, he was the brightest star in the baseball universe. Winning three complete games in a span of nine days in June. Between June 1st and September 2nd, Ruth was 13-1. and And he would end up the season with an 18-8 and record. Now, understandably, wins do not mean as much in the whole scheme of analytics today. But back then, wins, complete games, ERA, that was a pitcher's brand. That's how they got paid. In 1916, Ruth wins 23 games. 
And he posts a league-best ERA of 1.75 with nine shutouts. By the way, which I still believe is an American League record for Sal Paul's. I know Louisiana Lightning Ron Guidry tied the mark with that stupid 1978 season of his. But if I'm not mistaken, that record still stands. Nine sh- shutouts. In game two of the 1916 World Series, he pitches a 14-inning complete game, 2-1 to victory over the Brooklyn Dodgers as the Sox easily dispatched the tro- trolley Dodgers four games to one. In 1917, Ruth is becoming enamored with his own growing legend. He begins to argue with umpires about their strike zones. While facing the Senators on June 23rd, Babe walks the leadoff hitter on four straight pitches to start the game. And an enraged Ruth, who is feeling like he's being squeezed here, he storms off the mound and walks to up the umpire Brick Owens, and he punches him in the head. Ruth received a 10-game suspension and a $100 fine, which is about $2,300 in the 2024 economy. And he ends the year going 24-13 with six shutouts and an ERA of 2.01. And he pitched 35 complete games and 38 starts. Although Ruth didn't begin playing every day until 1918, the idea of Ruth hitting in the lineup every day was first broached in his rookie year when Washington sports writer Paul Eaton openly wondered in print if Ruth would be even more valuable at an everyday position than on the slab every fourth day. And he stressed that manager Bill Kerrigan should give it serious thought. And this is the first article I could find in my research. There may have been others, but this is the first one that I could find where the, the, the topic of him becoming a hitter is even broached. In 1915, Ruth batted 3-15, he led the Sox with four home runs. Slugger Braga Roth for the Indians climbed seven to lead the league. But he did that in 384 at-bats, while Ruth hit his four in only 92 at-bats. He didn't qualify with enough at-bats, but his 576 slugging percentage was higher than AL leader John Fournier of the White Sox. NL leader Gabby Kravitz of the Phillies, and Federal League leader Betty Croft for the Brooklyn Ball Club. While the Red, Scott, Red Sox offense sputtered after the sale of doubles machine and platinum glove center fielder Trish Speaker in 1916, who, if you remember from our Trish Speaker bio, never got along with Babe Ruth. If you haven't heard about their confrontations, between those two, you might want to check that pod out in the archives, Trish Speaker. But after Trish leaves Boston to manage and play for the Indians, the suggestion to play Ruth every day was renewed when he tied a record with a home run in three consecutive games. Ruth began to hate the helpless feeling he had sitting on the bench between starts, and he believed. He hadn't reached a ceiling as a hitter. And the only way he could do that is to get more A-Bs. In midseason, 
with Red Sox outfielders mired in slumps. Kerrigan is reportedly ready to give Babe his shot, but he never pulls the trigger. Ruth finished the season with a 317 batting average, which was easily the highest average on the team, as left fielder Duffy Lewis topped the regulars with a 302 average. No one else on the team hit above 265. Giving Ruth the opportunity to play every day, it resembled nothing more than a fantasy pipe dream for fans and sports writers. But all that changes in 1918. With the Great War serving as a backdrop going into 1918, many players throughout the league had either enlisted or accepted war-related jobs during the offseason. About two weeks into the season, Ed Barrow, after discussions with the right fielder and team captain, Harry Hooper, they penciled Ruth into the lineup. The move came after it was reported in a Boston newspaper that a mystery team had offered the Red Sox $100,000 for Babe's contract. That's about $2 million today. That's huge money in 1918. Owner Harry Proceed would respond by saying, It's absolutely ludicrous that I would ever consider selling Ruth's contract. He's our big ace. He's the most talked about, most sought after, most colorful ball player in the game. Later reports revealed it was the New York Yankees who made that first offer. On May 6, 1918, Babe appears in his first game other than as a pitcher or a pinch hitter. He's playing first base at the Polo Grounds, batting six against the Yankees. It also marked the first time he batted in a spot other than the proverbial pitcher's nine hole. Ruth goes two for four, drops two doms. At this point, the babe has enjoyed splooging all over the Yankees' lips. As five of his career 11 home runs had come into New York, and he abused Polo Grounds in particular, which obviously made an impression on the Yankees' brass. The next day, Ruth is bumped to clean up versus the Senators, and again, he drops Dong. And for the rest of the season, he is out hitting. He is hitting out of the cleanup position. But Barrow wanted the Babe to continue pitching. But with each day in the lineup, it brought more and more success with Ruth's lumber. And Ruth began to enjoy the notoriety of being a slugger more than being an ace. He begins to feign exhaustion or sore arm on days he has to start. And this led to the two men arguing over his playing time for several weeks. Finally, in a heated exchange between the two that goes down in July, Ruth abruptly quits the team. He returns a few days later after he and Prazee renegotiated his contract, which now included some hitting bonus provisions. And Ruth would say to the press that year, I don't believe a man can pitch his regular turn and play every other day in a position in the field. I'm young and I'm strong now. I could probably do it for one or two seasons, but I wouldn't think I could do it for any amount of serious time. He then began what is likely to be one of the greatest 9-10 week stretches of baseball. From mid-July through September 18th, 
Ruth pitched every fourth day, played either left field, center field, or first base on the other days. To be clear, Ruth's double duty was not unique during the Deadpool era. A handful of players had managed to do both, but his level of success was and remained unprecedented until the unicorn Shohei Atani shows up a hundred years later. In one 10-game stretch at Fenway, Ruth hit 469, 15 for 32. He slugged 969 with four singles, six doubles, and five triples. He was remarkably skilled at first base, a position he always considered his favorite. And on the mound, he was as stellar as usual, allowing only more than two runs once in his last ten starts. The Colossus, as he was known in Boston, he maintained his status as a game top pitcher while simultaneously becoming baseball's greatest hitter. Bar fucking none. His performance led the Sox to the AL panic in a season cut short by the owners who were feeling the crunch from dwindling attention, attendance, partially because of the watered-down rosters due to players being drafted to enlist or take war-related employment in shipyards or munitions factories, for example. Ruth over the World Series on September 5th, hurling a one nothing shutout versus the NL Cubs. He pitched well in Game 4 despite having a bruised hand, and his double drove in what turned out to be the winning run. Those performances in conjunction with his 14-inning masterpiece versus Brooklyn and 19-16, it gave him 29 and a third consecutive scoreless innings, uh, scoreless World Series innings pitched, a record that stood until Yankees pitcher Whitey Ford broke it during the Yankees' empirical run in the 1960s. And he was quickly becoming a love sensation in the B-Town, especially among the children whom Babe always made time for. I mean, you know, Babe is practically a kid himself at this time. So, he generally gra- always gravitated to kids. Babe was like a big old kid. Kind of reminds me of like Shaq, his rookie year. Just this big kid. Larger than life kid. But, to the Red Sox manager, management, Babe was becoming a pain in the ass. He refused to adhere to curfew rules. Uh, He was constantly updating his contract demands, which drove Harry Frazee up a wall. The owner had publicly spoken about trading him before the 1919 season when Babe was holding out uh, to double his salary, and he threatened the club, saying he would retire and become a boxer. However, the two would always seem to come to terms, And Babe's hitting was beginning to electrify the baseball universe. He played 110 games in left field, belted a Major League Baseball record 29 home runs, and led all of baseball with a 657 slug, 456 OBP, 103 runs scored, 103 ribs, 284 total bases. And he either drove in or scored a third of Boston's runs in 1919. But while Ruth won nine games on the bump that year, the rest of the staff fell prey to bad stats and injuries, and the defending champs limped to a 66-71 and record. The infamous sale of Ruth 
which I talked about at great length in the Fenway Park show, was announced after the New Year's uh, Party Gala of 1920. And although it was big news, public opinion in Boston was actually divided, believe it or not. Many Red Sox fans were genuinely aghast that such a talent would be cast off, while others, including former teammates, insisted that a cohesive unit, as opposed to an egomaniac, plus everyone else, was the future of the team. That had really been, well, let's face it, the most successful of all the teams during the first fifth of the new century. Owner Harry Frazee said Babe Ruth is without question the greatest hitter in the history of the game, but he is also the most selfish and inconsiderate player I've ever known. Had he possessed a better disposition and had been willing to take orders and work for the good of the team like the other players, I would have never even contemplated letting him go. And even though Ruth broke the single-season home run record with his 29, the Red Sox did finish in fifth, and Prezee considered the home run ball to be more spectacular than useful. Nah, what, 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 what? The $100,000 amount was astronomical, about $1.5 million today. But Prezee felt like the Yankees were actually taking a huge gamble. A statement he would later be ridiculed for. Yeah, Ruth ate and drank excessively. He frequented whores. And he had already been involved in several car accidents. It truly wouldn't have surprised very few people if uh, Ruth was out of baseball in two years for whatever reason. Amidst the questions and speculation of his future, the still only 25-year-old kid boarded a train for New York City when he was on his way to Florida for spring training. And I tell you what, C-Mads, let's stick a pin in that right here. And when I get back, we'll begin Ruth's historical and groundbreaking run that saw the rise of his near-mythological career, as well as the New York Yankees empire. I will never charge you nerds for the baseball content, no Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play bonus subscriptions. If I give you a bonus blast on your lips, just know it's always free, freaks. All I ask is that you listen, rate, and review, share with your C-Man buddies, support my sponsors, Budweiser and Old Bay, as well as the grassroots sponsor that supports your grassroots baseball pod. Labaro's Hand Cleaners. No more smelly hands. Let me dip out real quick. Hook my boy Gunner up with his first segment, Treats Old. Let me hydrate, rip a tip, tube or two. I'll be ready to toe the slab once again. We got more of the Bamboo's throw when I return. The Yankee years, freaks. Hold on tight. I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. game is for you, the fan. You want the action to flow. 
the bat on the ball and carrying on the base pass. This is the game we all want to see. Get the ball, pitch the ball. Keep the defense on their toes. Field like Ozzy, run like Ricky. So get that shift out of here. Free up the players to put on a show. It's the best game in the world. Now it's even better. All of which leads us up to the gentleman now standing at the microphone in person. One of the leading exponents of my favorite sport. A local boy who made good in a big way. The man Chicago pitchers love to hate. Mr. Lou Gehrig, step right up and take a bow. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Lou Gehrig. Thank you, Rudy. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I would like to say a few words on my favorite topic. That said topic being a gent by the name of George Herman Root. What a man. The babe and I got back to town an hour ago from an all-day fishing trip out on the south shore of the Long Island Sound. Between week fish, the gang did a lot of reminiscing about the series, and everybody agreed that the high point of the whole works was Babe's Homer in the fifth inning of the third game out in Chicago. I've played a lot of baseball but I have never seen so much nerve on display before. Babe had two strikes on him. There were 50,000 Cub fans giving him the old Bronx cheer, and the Cub players were riding him from the field. So what does he do? He stands up there and tells the world that he's going to sock that next one. And not only that, but he tells the world right where he's going to sock it, into the center field stand. A few seconds later... The ball was just where he pointed, in the center field stand. He called his shot and then made it. I ask you, what can you do with a guy like that? Howdy, y'all. This is Big Tex, Gage Dean, executive producer of Backwards K Pod. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fishing Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap only to touch my eyes half hour later and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no Bay spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. 
There is also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summertime shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com It's your boy, Jake the Snake Robinson, and this week we've been talking about George Herman Ruth, the Colossus of Swat, the Great Bambino, the fucking babe. And before me and my boy Gunner broke out for spots, we were talking about the boy who grew up in West Baltimore, a part of town us locals called Pigtown, where they literally used to run the pigs down what is now Washington Boulevard to the butcher shops. Anyway, Lil George was a little badass. He develops a taste for beer and chewing tobacco when he is seven. He's running around the ports of the harbor, raising hell. And his poor parents are overwhelmed by the young boy's behavior. And they send him off to St. Mary's School for the Incorrigibles, where he learns about life and baseball from Brother Matthias. And eventually... He is noticed by International League scout for the Baltimore Orioles, uh, Jack Dunn. While playing for the Orioles, people all over are talking about Dunn's baby Ruth, who is as nasty as they come as a southpaw pitcher. Plus, yeah, the kid can hit a little. 
and eventually he is sold to the Red Sox and is the catalyst for three World Series championships as Boston is baseball royalty. But as Babe is being allowed to hit more and more, Burns enjoys the notoriety of being the game's preeminent power hitter in the game's young history. And he's loving this more and more. And his desire to continue pitching is becoming less and less. After setting the game's bar in home runs with 29 in 1919, Ruth is pretty much done with pitching, which rankles some teammates and owner Harry Frazee. And for the second time in three years, the Yankees do offer to purchase Babe's contract. The second time, the Red Sox agreed to the sum of 100 k and when I broke out, the 25-year-old Babe Ruth is headed to New York City to play for the Yankees. And I can only imagine what this little West Baltimore gangster must have thought when he got off that train in Grand Central Station, New York City, at the age of 25 in 1920. He, he couldn't have found a more fitting place or time for his larger-than-life personality and his hedonistic appetite and lifestyle, it's the Roaring Twenties, the Jazz Age, a most progressive social America with heightened sexual attitudes and a greater emphasis on the pursuits of pleasure. Prohibition, which was instituted in 1920, had no effect whatsoever in New York City. It just took things underground, which led to even more debauchery. In an era of wonderful nonsense, as writer Westbrook Pegler called it. Gutter. Baseball 1919 was a time of trick pitches. The Emory ball, the spitter, the various ways the doctor at baseball were outlawed going into 1920. And the league began using better quality balls that year, more tightly wound much livelier, what we call a juice ball today. Before 1920, the same five or six balls would be used the whole baseball game. Back in those days, balls that are hit into the stands were thrown back onto the field to continue to be played with. By the end of the game, hitting some of these balls were like hitting a lifeless dry sponge. And, you know, it's all about timing. And Babe would feast and thrive with the new baseballs being offered up in 1920. And in time, so with the other sluggers in the league. The Babe got off to a slow start in 1920. His first year with the Yankees. He was in spring training for three weeks before he dropped doing, before he dropped on for the first time. Uh, he also jumped into the stands when a fan called him a piece of shit while tracking a fly ball during an exhibition game. He ran blindly into a palm tree in center field and was knocked the fuck out. The tree was fine. Can you imagine if this happened today? I mean, think of the memes alone. Jordan thinks he has a bad with a crime meme. Can you imagine Babe Ruth running into a palm tree after being bought for $2 million? <laughs> but I digress. April isn't much better as Ruth misses time when he strains his right knee 
But when the calendar flips to May, the Bambino began to electrify the baseball universe. He starts off the month with home runs in consecutive games versus the no-no Nanette Red Sox. He then goes on to set the Major League Baseball record for home runs in a month with 11. And that record would stand for less than 30 days as the Babe dropped 13 more dogs in June. He tied his own single-season record of 29. He set in 1919 on July 16th versus the cursed Red Sox. Two weeks later, he had 37. He finished the year with a spectacular and very useful, with all apologies to Mr. Frizee and those crazy Red Sox. A spectacular and useful 54 big blocks. He out-homered 14 of the other 15 Major League Baseball teams. The AL runner-up for Dogs in 1920 was George Sisler with 19. Cy Williams and his prodigious 15 for Filthy led the NL. He had more than those two combined. He had 14.6 of the American League's total of 369 in 1920. And in addition to this vulgar display of power, the Bambino was fourth in batting average, ranking at a 376 clip. His slugging percentage of 847 had stood for more than 80 years before Barry Bonds eclipsed the mark in 2001 with an 863. His arrival in New York began a 12-year stretch of offensive dominance that will more than likely never be duplicated. From 1920 to 1931, Ruth led the AL in slug 11 times, walks 9 times. Walks? Are you talking to me? OVP 8 times, runs scored 7 times. His BA eclipsed 358 times and happened those 12 seasons. I'm sorry, his B.A. clips 358 times. And half of those 12 seasons, he batted over 370. And Babe would often say, if he choked up and shortened his swing, he could hit 600. And here is something I found interesting about the Babe that I never realized. So his last year at B-Town, he played most of his games in left field. When he joins the Yankees and begins playing his home games in the venerable polo grounds with their quirky dimensions, he played all three outfield positions. In 1920, Ruth started 84 games in right field, 31 in left, 25 in center. The following season, 2020, uh, 1921, he plays almost exclusively in left field, starting 132 of 150 games there. He didn't even play one inning in right field. And it wasn't until 1923, when the Yankees now have their own crib in the boogie down, that Ruth, as a rule, would play almost all home games exclusively in right field, and he would play left field when he was on the road. Although, I've always known Ruth as the greatest right fielder who ever played the game. The truth is... He started 1,004 career games in left field. Almost as many games as he played right field. 1,122, a difference of only 118 games. And I honestly never knew that stat. I find that very interesting. Sunday night baseball, Sunday baseball, had it been illegal in New York City before 1919. 
once it went legal, the fan base changed forever. Baseball had an unscrupulous gambling and drinking element permeating throughout the grandstands of Major League Baseball parks. Now, women and children are beginning to visit the ballpark after church on Sundays. Especially the Italians from Upper Manhattan living around the polo grounds. And these were the fans that were quickly falling in love with their gregarious, larger-than-life Babe Ruth. And they would be the faithful who gave him the Great Bambino moniker. His star power is unmistakable. In a baseball universe that is rocking from the news of the Chicago White Sox throwing the 1919 World Series... Ruth was taking the game in a whole different direction, one that had never been imagined, let alone seen. He was must-see on the road. It seemed as though if Ruth had a home run on the road, the home team fans almost didn't care what the score was. He was cheered almost as loud on the road as he was at home. The media loved him. His broad moon pie face with the eyes of a still playful man child his flat nose, his tiny eyes. He had a uniquely, unique look. And it became a face that was instantly recognizable. And slowly but surely, the press loves him so much that the myth, the apocryphal, and the truth become blurred. And all you had was Ruth. A true life 1920 superhero. They gave him wild nicknames. The Colossus of Clout, the Great Bambino, the Sultan of Swat, Behemoth of Bash, the Prince of Pounders, the Wizard of Wham, and so on, and so on. His own name became a nickname bestowed on someone displaying greatness in their field. For example, this dude is the Babe Ruth of Surfing. He's the Babe Ruth of Poker. His last name became an adjective, a Ruthian effort. Like a Herculean effort. His teammates, they usually just called him Jids for George. The Yankees finished 1920 season 95-59 and 59 in third place. Three games behind pennant winning Cleveland. It was their best showing in a decade as we are literally on the ground level of the greatest baseball empire to be formed. And we're sitting here and we're looking up. They followed up by winning 98 games in 1921 and their first ever AL pennant. And somehow, Ruth might have actually been better to play in the 21 campaign than he was the season before. His batting average rose to 378. He drove in 168 runs. He hit a career high triple, uh, 13 triples. Oh, and he also broke his own home run record for his third consecutive year when he clobbered 59. On July 18th, George Herman Ruth became the game's career home run leader when he passes Roger Connor with his 139th dong. He sets new records and runs with 177 extra base hits, 119, and total bases, 457. Which the OGs know in here, I love me some total bases. All three of those achievements have yet to be matched. He also pitched in two games that year for the pinstripes. On June 13th, 
He allowed four runs in five innings. He also dropped two bombs and finished the game in center field as the Yankees won 13-8 versus the Tigers. In September of 1921, Ruth undergoes three hours of tests at Columbia University to determine his athletic and psychological capabilities. The test revealed that Babe was not human. He's a fucking freak. While the average man is around 60% efficient with their senses, Babe operated at 90%. His eyes were about 12% faster than the human average man. His ear functioned at around 10% quicker than mere mortals. His nerves were steadier than 499 out of 500 people tested. His attention and quickness of perception was off the charts. And his intelligence, as demonstrated by the quickness and accuracy of understanding, was approximately 10% above normal. The Yankees faced the New York Giants in the 1921 World Series. Ruth cut his left arm bad and it got infected, sliding in the second in Game 2. In Game 5, he wrenches his knee bad, and he makes only one pinch-hitting appearance in the last three games. The Yankees won the first two games of the series, but fell to the Giants five games to three in the best-of-nine series. On May 20th, 1922, he is named the third captain in Yankees history behind Hal Chase and Roger Peckinpah. The honor would last less than a week as Ruth started slow, batting 095 with the booze raining down on him. On May 25th, he was thrown out trying to stretch a single into a double. And Ruth angrily threw dirt in umpire George Hillenbrand's face. On his way to the dugout, Ruth spies a heckler flapping his gums. He jumps the fence and starts chasing the fan, who luckily got away. Ruth ends up on top of the dugout screaming for anyone in the crowd to come and get you... Get some. Take your best shot at the big dog. Any of you. Ruth was fired $200, which is around $3,600 today. And he was replaced as captain by Everett Scott. He was also spent in three games in mid-June for an argument with umpire Bill Deneen. After receiving a suspension the next day, he challenges Deneen to a fist fight. So the suspension was increased to five games. In the wake of these suspensions, Ruth felt compelled to watch his temper. On June 26, an argument breaks out with his teammates and Deneen again. And Babe merely shakes his head and sits down in the outfield grass and watches the action. Ruth only plays in 110 games in 1922. His batting average falls to 315, but he led the league with a 672 slug and a 434 OBP, which was fourth best in the league. The Yanks and the Giants again meet in the series, this time in a best of seven affair, and the Giants sweep the series in five games. That's right. I said a five-game sweep, best of seven. Remember, my young grasshoppers, there's no lights back then. Game two ended it as a tie due to darkness. Thus, the five-game sweep. And that should win you a free bar, uh, beer at a bar somewhere tonight, c Feel free to use that one on a snake. 
Babe went two for 17 in that series. The Yankees leave Polar Grounds after the 1922 season. We talk about that in our Polar Ground show and that banging ass catalog I got. Ruth moves into Yankee Stadium and it is immediately dubbed the house that Ruth built. Although, with that short right field porch, it probably should have been called the house built for Ruth. The babe makes himself right at home in his new days, and he mercilessly destroys the American League, returning to his battering ways with a vengeance. He hit 393, falling just four hits shy of hitting 400, but good enough for second place in the American League behind only Harry Holliman of the Tigers, who batted 403. The Yankees won their third straight pennant, finishing 16 games ahead of Detroit, and for the third straight year, the World Series was an all-New York affair with the Giants, who must feel like they own Babe and their young Yankees during this time. So they're set to re-rematch. This time, though, it'll be the Yankees losing the first two games and coming back finally to win their first World Series championship. Ruth with 7 for 19 with three home runs, all of them coming at the polo grounds. Light-hitting Casey Stengel would actually be the first Yankee player to ever hit a home run, a World Series home run at Old Yankee Stadium. There's another good one for you. Ruth won his only batting title in 1924 with a 378 BA. He had 46 home runs, tied for second in the league in RBI with 124. However, come on. The Yankees finished in second place, two games behind the Washington Senators, which we talked about in that Walter Johnson bio. As Ruth Rose, so did the Yankees. 1925 was a rough year for the defending champ. Ruth put up the worst numbers of his offensive career at that point and came in grossly overweight at 260 pounds. Ruth's numbers suffered, and so did the team's chances of repeating as they fell to fifth place. Now, to Babe's credit, he saw the error of his old of his ways. He worked hard in the winter to lose nine inches off his midriff. And, you know, Ruth was a big dude. He had an appetite for fatty foods, hard liquor, fast chicks. But teammates will tell you, Ruth never let his weight get out of control like that ever again during his prime. In 1926, he leads New York back to the series versus the St. Louis Cardinals, clobbering three home runs in Game 4, the first time he homered three times in a game, and the first time it ever happened in World Series history. That was the same day he promised to hit a home run for 11-year-old hospital patient Johnny Sylvester. The 1926 World Series ends in defeat for the Yankees, though, as Ruth is thrown out trying to steal second base for the last out of the series. Which, why? (laughs) Why? Anyway, the 1927 New York Yankees, murderers row, they obliterate every team in their way to go towards, you know, this 110-44 and season, winning the AL pennant by 19 games, sweeping the Pittsburgh Pirates right out of the series. Ruth's fabled 60 home run season and captured the headlines. But really, it was Lou Gehrig at age 24 that had the better statistical season. You can look it up. It's true. 
The Yankees won nine fewer games in 1928, but their 101 wins, 53 loss record was still top shelf liquor in the AL and good enough for the third consecutive pennant. Ruth batted 3.23 with 54 home runs, and he led the league in slugging percentage. The Yankees used only three pitchers in the series, and for the second straight year, they swept their World Series opponents, this time the cards of St. Lowe. Yankees manager Miller Huggins passed away suddenly after the 1929 season, and Babe lobbied hard for the gig going into 930, but the Yankees never seriously considered it. By the end of June 30th, Ruth was ahead of a 60-home run benchmark pace of 1927, but injuries slowed him down, and he finished with 49. The Yankees were an offensive juggernaut in both 1930 and 1931. They scored more than 1,000 runs for an average of nearly 7 runs a game. But it was the Philadelphia A's and Connie Mack who won the pennant in 1929, 1930, and 1931. Behind the power of Al Simmons and Jimmy Fox and the pitching of Lefty Grove. Not to mention that, you know, the managerial chops and the tactical wizardry of Connie Mack. And I talked all about that in the Shy Park Pod that's in the archives. I mean, you know, that catalog is banging. In 1931, at the age of 36, Ruth had one of his best all-around seasons, belting 46 home runs, 162 RBIs, 128 walks, 149 runs scored, with a 373, 95, 700-slash-line. Ruth made his final trip to the World Series in 1932, and I do find it incredible that during that amazing seven-year run of Garrick and Roof terrorizing AL pitchers, they only won one pennant together. Roof and Garrick would lead the Bombers to a sweep over the Cubs in the Fall Classic, giving them 12 straight World Series game victories. On October 1st, Roof adds to his legend by supposedly calling his shot versus Charlie Root for the Northsiders that day. Game 3 with Game 9 and at 4s. Ruth finds himself in an 0-2 count and the legend goes that Ruth put up two fingers to single two strikes and any points. And film was recovered of the incident in 1999. Ruth does point, but what he is pointing at is inconclusive at best. He could be pointing at the dugout Bench jockeys giving him the business, or he could be saying, I have one strike left, or he could be pointing at that flagpole in center field. What we do know for sure is Ruth in the next pitch for one of the longest home runs ever seen in Wrigley beyond the flagpole in center field. And as Ruth ran the bases, he is laughing his ass off, pointing and jeering at the Cubs dugout. When the reporters asked him later if he had really called a shot, he responded back, It's in the papers, ain't it? It was Ruth's last trip to the dance. He played on seven World Series championship teams, four with the Yankees, 1923, 1927, 28, and 32, and three with the Red Sox, 1915, 1916, and 1918. And he also lost uh, three World Series with New York in 1921, 22, and 26. 
1933. That's Ruth's 20th season. He batted 301 with 34 home runs. He led the league in walks. He also played the first MLB All-Star Game at Comiskey Park and hit the first home run in All-Star Game history. And he robbed Chuck Chick Happy of a home run and the eighth to preserve the AL 4-2 win. The Yankees put his seven games back in the Senators and in an effort to boost the gate, the team announced Ruth would pitch the last game of the year versus the Red Sox. The 39-year-old Southpaw held the Sox without a run for five innings, staked to a 6-0 lead before he stumbled in the sixth, allowing a walk, five singles, four runs. But he finished the game out as the Yankees held on for a 6-5 victory. The complete game did take its toll on Ruth as he couldn't comb his hair with his left arm for about a week after that game. On July 13, 1934, the Babe hits a 700th home run. At this point, only two players have surpassed 300 home runs, and that's Lou Gehrig with 314 and Rogers Hornsby with 301. Four days later, Ruth drew his 2,000th walk. In August, during the Yankees' road trip, a Fenway record of 48,000 fans turned out on a Sunday, assuming it would be his last appearance in Boston. The fans cheered everything he did. When he grounded out the spot on bat, he was giving a long standing ovation. Ruth doffed his cap and shed a tear. Meanwhile, back in Yankee Stadium, and what was rumored as his last game as a Yankee, only 2,000 fans showed up at the house he built to say goodbye. Bay played one inning, drew a walk, and was replaced by a pinch runner. He ended the season batting 288. Now, Yankees owner Jacob Rupert, not wanting Ruth back under any circumstances, worked out a secret deal with M.L. Fuchs, the Boston Braves owner, and we talked about this on the History of the Braves show. I mean, good Lord. Look at how all these shows just intertwine with one another. So, Bukes offers Ruth a contract that includes the title of assistant manager and vice president. And Ruth loved the idea. And when he informs Rupert, the shifty owner says he won't stand in Babe's way. But, it was all a lie. Which, Ruth slowly, but surely, begins to realize. Ruth ended up playing in only 28 games for the Braves, batting 181. The lone bright spot, and we talked about this on the Forbes Field Show. It came on May 25th, 1935, when he matched the final three home runs of his career. Number 714 disappeared over the right field roof, and was the longest home run ever hit in Forbes Field, which was spacious like the Grand Canyon. Many of the records he set while playing have since been eclipsed, but what cements the Babe's status as a fucking legend is the combination of average, hitting with power, and his resume on the bump. After a brief stint as a Brooklyn Dodgers coach, George retired to life of golf, fishing, bowling, public appearances. 
in November of 1946, he checked himself into the French Hospital on 29th Street in Manhattan, complaining of headaches and pain above his left eye. It was cancer. Although the newspapers never printed that word. Babe Ruth Day was held at Yankee Stadium, and then at every other park the year after. A crowd of 58,339 showed up for the very first one at Old Yankee Stadium. Most fans and former teammates were visibly shocked by how frail and fragile this once, mo- this once monster had become. Ruth was in and out of hospitals for the year. And he returned to the boogie down one more time in uh, June 13, 1948 on a ra- rainy cold day to his house. Yankee Stadium. It's celebrating their 25th anniversary and his number three was being retired. Eleven days later, George was back in the hospital. The cancer had spread to his liver, lungs, and kidneys. And Babe Ruth died at 8.01 p.m. on August 16, 1948 at the age of 53. My age. That's, that's insane. He is buried at the gate of Heaven uh, Cemetery in Valhalla, New York next to his second wife, Claire, who died in 1976. Upon his death, the New York Times began its obituary by saying, Probably nowhere in all the imaginative field of fiction could one find a career more dramatic and bizarre than that portrayed in real life by George Herman Ruth. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to twist this up around the horn like 5-4-3 with the game-ending double play. I hope you enjoyed the Babe Ruth bio as much as I enjoyed getting all the research together and painting this picture of his life for you. And look, much like Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and Ted Williams and others, I probably could have broken this story down into different parts, but you OGs know I'm not a fan of two or three part shows. What I try to do is give you a template for you to use as a starting point. If you want to learn more about the babe, there's plenty of stuff out there to build onto this. I got to get your cements back to your loved ones, patiently waiting for you back at Terrapin as we make our quantum leap through time back to 2024. But, and while we're doing that, let's take one last look at that Babe Ruth resume of mind-bottling stats. George Herman Ruth. A.K.A. The Babe. A.K.A. The Great Bambino. A.K.A. The Prince of Pounders. A.K.A. The Sultan of Swat. A.K.A. The Maharashi of Mash. A.K.A. The Colossus of Cloud. A.K.A. The King of Crash. Babe Ruth, ladies and gentlemen. Born February 6, 1895 in Baltimore, Maryland. So... 
as I drop this show. The babe is officially 129 years old in a day. Happy belated birthday, babe. You will not soon be forgotten, my friend. Oh my God, just ridiculous. Died August 16, 1948. Went to St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys. On June 11, 1914, he became the 4,203rd player to join the MLB fraternity when he makes his MLB debut versus the Filthy A's, pitching seven innings, surrendering two earned runs on eight hits with one strikeout, no walks, and a Red Sox win over the A's. 22-year baseball career with the Red Sox, Yankees, and Braves. 182.6 wins above replacement, which is number one all time. 2,503 games, 10,627 plate appearances, 2,174 runs scored, fourth most in baseball history, 2,837 hits, 506 doubles, 5,793 total bases, eighth most ever. His career 342 BA is the 13th best mark in baseball history, 474 OBP, second best ever to the splinter. 690 slugging percentage is the bar. 1.164 OPS, best ever. 136 triples, 2,214 RBIs, third most ever. 714 home runs, third most behind Hank and Barry. 2,062 walks, third most. 1,356 extra base hits, the fifth most ever. As a pitcher, he went 96 and 46 with a 2.28 in 163 games. 147 of them as the starting pitcher. 177, 107 complete games, 17 shutouts, four saves, 1,221.1 innings pitched, 488 strikeouts, a 122 ERA plus, 1.16 whip, 2.81 bip. Two All-Star Games, 1933 and 1934. The first two ever, 1923 AL MVP, 1924 batting title, 1916 pitching title, and a 1936 he earned 95.1% of the vote. Turn inclusion in the inaugural and greatest Hall of Fame class ever to be inducted into the Howard Halls of Cooperstown, New York. Yo, who the hell didn't vote for Babe Ruth? I mean, really. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seamen's of all ages, this is the story of George Herman Babe Ruth. And I want to thank you guys for checking in this week. I'll be up bright and early tomorrow hitting that cage, making my adjustment. And I promise, freaks, I'll try to be better next week. As I traverse time to get you back to your loved ones at Terrapin Station, I see the Babe Ruth story getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror. I turn my attention to I never say die baseball hydra, and I chop the head off that beast, only to see two more topics appear in its place. Next week, folks, we're going to do a deep dive into one of the greatest pitches in my lifetime for sure. Next week, I have the one and only 
Pedro Martinez on deck. So, that sounds like a lot of fun. Pedro Martinez, y'all. Like I said before, I will never charge you freaks for the baseball content here at Backwards K-Pod. I'm just going to keep coming through every Wednesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Don Mattingly, y'all. Please share with your seamhead buddies. Leave a rate review. I ain't scared. I do what I do when I do it. No one even fucking comes close to the heat I'm bringing, nerds. If you're scared, go get a fucking dog. You can find us on TikTok and YouTube at Backwards K Pod. Our Twitter handle is at back underscore K underscore podcast. And you can always find me at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook group page. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch watching TV, got their noses in their phones and their pads, by all means, take those little rug rats outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo. And as an Oriole fan, I can only smile and concur. When he said, you go to hell, Andy Pettit, you Southpaw Demon Seed freak. Okay, Gunner, let's get these freaks back to Terrapin. Me and my ferocious, felonious feline of a co-host, my boy Charlie Guns. We're throwing up our Gunner Hendersons, y'all. That's our number two, you nerds. As in, peace. See you next week with the Pedro Pod. I love you guys. Thank you for letting me live my dream. Talking seems to the world. And leaving behind my legacy for my daughter and her future children. It means a lot to me. I love all of y'all. See ya.